HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to Cutting the Curd, broadcasting live in the Heritage Radio Network. This is your host, Greg Blaze. On today's episode, I'm here with Benton Brown and Peter Dixon. How are you guys doing? Good, good. You guys got some well. big beards. I'm not sure I'm, uh, you know, got a big enough beard to be able to hang out with you here in well, this booth. winter's coming, you know. You got no razors up there in Vermont? Is that what's going on? <laughs> well, we're glad to have you here. Um, as many of you listeners know, Peter Dixon's something of a living legend in the cheese community. He's made cheese since the early 80s and consulted for many artisan cheesemakers and dairy farmers around the country for almost 20 years. He's now the owner and head cheesemaker at his very own creamery in Westminster West, Vermont, Parish Hill Creamery, creamery along with his wife, wife, Rachel, who's here in the booth with us. Hi there. Hello. Nice to see you. And uh, his sister-in-law, Alex. Uh, Benton Brown's experience in cheese is a bit more recent, but he's already been a visionary in bridging the gap between the rural nature of cheesemaking and urban consumption by developing cheese aging facilities in these old lagering tunnels right here in Brooklyn in Crown, in Crown Heights. Uh, currently, he's aging many of Peter's cheeses for the New York market, and uh, he's got some more salacious activities going on in some of the other chiefs' caves, which we'll, uh, we'll get into later. How are you doing, Benton? We may need a whole other episode for what's happening <laughs> in those other tunnels. Flavored body oils, things of that nature. Definitely. definitely. <laughs> well, it's great to have both of you here, um, and we'll get to some, uh, you know, some harder-hitting questions in, uh, in a bit. But first, I wanted to ask you guys real simply, uh, why cheese, and how did you get into this business? Peter, I'd love to start with you. I got into the business because my family had a dairy farm in Guilford, Vermont, and I was just kind of bumming around in the early 80s. Uh, playing music, <laughs> rock and roll. A lot of a lot of cheesemakers yeah. and a lot of cheesemongers are musicians, I've found. Well, I grew up in the country, and i tired of the urban life. I don't think I'd make it down here. Why uh, is that? Too many people. <laughs> <laughs> no. Everybody from here is moving up to Vermont, so well, they're, they're coming for you. Dude. I still got my woods that I know <laughs> I can take barrier. a walk in. Yeah, yeah. So you, you just keep... You, 
You said uh, your family owned a dairy farm? Yeah, and uh, of course, even back then in the 80s, it was evident that if you wanted to milk a small herd of cows to make a living, you would have to add value. You couldn't just sell that milk wholesale to the processor. You had to become your own processor. And so we jumped into the cheese business out of a business bottling raw milk, and that was 1983. And I was home for Christmas. My brother as well, who is a student at the University of Vermont studying animal science. My brother Sam has been the herd uh, manager, dairy farm manager up at Shelburne Farms for the past 20 years. So we were both home for Christmas, and my uh, my parents proposed this idea of, of segueing into a cheese business sure. and starting a family business together. And that's that's uh, how I got into it. That's the roots of the roots of you. Roots of me and him. That's uh, that's yeah. great, and I mean almost. And then a lot of the people that I've interviewed uh, that are from the dairy background have that same story. You know, they got to add value to the milk. And, uh, I mean, it seems uh, simple and obvious after you've answered the question, but, uh, you know, people don't understand, I think, how much value that it, that it adds. Oh, yeah. It can add, make it 10 times as valuable. Uh, and then um, now, um, after, after a long time, you have your own creamery. Yes. Um, a Parish Hill Creamery. How did that come about? Well, that is something that um, I've already, always aspired to uh, be operating. Um, always in the back of my head, I want to be making my own cheese. I had a great run at Consider Bardwell Farm yeah, from yeah, absolutely. Uh, 2007 till uh, 2012, where I developed several cheeses for them and, and helped them grow to produce quite a bit more cheese and achieve their goals. And you know, my time to, to segue into my business came about uh, two summers ago, and we started working on it, Rachel and I, getting our infrastructure together and ideas about what cheeses we should make. And I've, I've created a passion for Italian-style cheeses really in the last decade, and I wanted to stick with that because uh, they uh, are, are a very intriguing. Uh, they they cr- have a broad spectrum. You know, you can make... Anything Italian style uh, could be very hard, long age, down to something that's uh, just, you know, softer. And uh, all can be made from raw milk. So that uh, appealed to me to stick with that. And I just felt like marketing-wise, there isn't enough of that cheese being made in small batches in a real traditional manner. Well, as a guy who works for an Italian company, you know, I'm a cheese maker, a mm. cheese monger for for Italy. I definitely understand what you're talking about. Uh, I, as a, I've been a cheese monger for about about as long, you know, um, as I can remember at this point. And uh, and I came to Italy a lot to learn about uh, the styles of Italian cheese making, and I found out. Uh, about pasta filata cheeses and how underrepresented they were in the American market. And uh, one of the cheeses I know that you have at Parish Hill Creamery is called Suffolk Punch, which is very much like Cacio Cavallo, um, or to me it is. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that recipe for a second. Yeah, sure. That uh, is something I started working on uh, like 15 years ago. I started making the hard provolone-style cheese in that gourd shape. And uh, was real popular, very easy to sell, and, and fun to make. You know, it's it's like the thing I like about cheese making more than anything is it's an art form, and I like to make the different shapes. And then the thing that's Benton Benton's focused on the affinage is 
super critical because that's where you can create these different hues on your rinds and textures, and that's the art form of it. So actually being able to hand sculpt a piece of hot curd into a shape like that is still every day when I go to the cheese room, you know, we make that cheese about two, maybe sometimes three times a week. It's exciting. It's fun. Yeah, it is. Uh, I, my, my guys pull mozzarella for me every day, and, uh, you know, you get these kids, and at the beginning, uh, you know, I have kids who never had any, any cheese experience whatsoever, but they love to play with the curd. Uh-huh. And uh, on uh, Benton, uh, you have a special relationship with the curd as well. Uh, your caves take Peter's cheeses from Vermont and finish them there. And I was wondering if you could tell us about uh, the effect of the aging caves that you have on cheeses like the Suffolk Punch. Mm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, also, b- back to the make of the Suffolk Punch, all, all that stretching, it is also a tremendous amount of work. Oh, yeah. It, it is fun, but it, it uh, will give you a Well, you've been up you there and done out. it, right? I have done he it more than once. Had his hands in the curve. That's the best feeling yeah. ever. I have my vaguely my pornographic s- feeling sure. to put your hands down in that vat. Rachel, would you agree with that? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And everyone has to heard their signature experience, their signature gourd that you can tell by they the made it by the top, by the you know, shape so. of the yeah, top. Yeah, so, so that's an interesting, uh, interesting thing. So. Um, the like the Suffolk punch is is a cheese uh, that is a, a, a pasta filata cheese, which mm-hmm. means uh, you know stretched curd, roughly in Italian. Uh, but talk about that. So that the the tops are. If you ever see a guy make mozzarella or a gal make mozzarella, they sort of pop the top off like it was the head of a Barbie doll that they were destroying, or a GI <laughs> Joe, or a dandelion, or something like that. And then uh, then. Um, but the top at the top, there's a little button of cheese, and uh, with with uh, the Paris Hill creamery, you can tell who made the cheese by what the top looks like. So I was wondering if you could yeah, tell us mm-hmm. what we, that's all about. We call that the knob, actually. The knob. The top is the that's knob. not pornographic at all, either. Not at all. Oh right? hell! No. And we sometimes refer to it as the salty knob. Oh yeah. <laughs> This is a good show. It's a good yeah, show. It's a very good show. Yeah. I feel like I should be totally drunk. You while have to. Doing you have to have me back because absolutely yeah, okay. the salty knob, salty knob, Peter salty knob yeah. Dixon. I make is the saltiest knob anytime. You make the saltiest knob uh-huh. of all. Actually, Fantastic. mine is more like a spire. Excellent. He has more of a, the, a tip. <laughs> he has more of a tip on his knob. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and then we have the Preston. Our, our younger listeners. Um, uh, Jack's going to have to break out the slide whistle, I think, uh, <laughs> to uh, get rid of some of these uh, descriptions. But, but that's all right. That's all right. Uh, and, the, but, and the apprentices do different knobs yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, I know once Sam Frankie likes to do little small knobs. He thinks that's more of a traditional. And we have uh, Vito's style is more of a mushroom cap. Big, that's really wide cool. One, yeah. That's really cool. <laughs> and I actually agree with with you. And uh, Benton, I know you come from an art background, so uh, I know that your interest in the cheese is uh, is art on some level because we've discussed it. And I I agree with you. And I'm I'm forever a man that is uh, not fighting against science, but I'm a terrible scientist. I've been in and around the cheese making process um, so many times I can't count. And I've taught so many classes and tastings on cheese. I always mess it up. But the the beauty of it and the ability to uh, to make something like that and to create those objects and, and put your own stamp on them, to me, is what 
is so uh, so relevant and wonderful about cheese, and it's the window through which I see those products. Maybe right. you agree right. with me a little bit on that. I, I do, but to get there, to get to that point where you can actually create that wonderful art form, there is that science I know. of fermentation. It's there. And, and what I've chosen to do, and Rachel's been on board with me, about this for our parish Hill creamery is to go back to, again to the traditions i you know because we're making real tri- traditional italian cheeses i felt that we had to make our own starter cultures to ferment that wonderful raw milk that we get from the elm lee farm in putney vermont that's part of the putney school uh and so what we did was we went and talked with the herd manager the farmer about what are his favorite cows. His healthiest cows, really, is what it comes down to. And he chose three Jerseys and three Holsteins. We went up uh, with one of our apprentices. She had previously been a student at the school and worked in the summer as a, as a milker. So she hand-milked six of these cows, one after the other, into a nice, clean bucket. We poured each cow's milk through a filter and collected it in a mason jar that had been sterilized. And then the caps were, got put on the mason jars. We brought those home and let them sour naturally in the creamery. And from those, we have made four native starter cultures that we make all of our cheese from. So those are the agents that ferment the sugars in the milk to make the curd that then we can assemble and develop into the wonderful products that you are appreciating absolutely and that bath that la- that sort of that ferment bath that it mm-hmm. goes through is a very italian uh, yeah it's very italian but, process you so know the, a very che- an older cheese making process that a lot of people don't uh don't start the milk like that anymore they purchase cultures correct exactly. and uh even farmstead operations uh using milk of their own herd don't really do that very often. It's very rare, and I'm encouraging people to do Why, this. Why, though? What's the, what's the advantage? People are talking a lot about terroir, locality. Well, what better way to bring that into your cheese to get to market and deliver that to the consumers than to use your milk to make your starter cultures? And you can taste the effects? Certainly. Why is that? Just be just, why, well. Just for for airheads like mm-hmm. me that don't understand. Well, you have seven basic bacteria that we can choose from to ferment the sugars in milk to make lactic acid to get the primary fermentation going. But we have several, you know, up to a hundred. I don't know, many, many more bacteria in milk that are desirable to uh, for, create, flavor. for flavor development type fermentations and we get all those we don't really know what's in that starter sure. we know that it performs well because we can measure the ph development and know that acid's being made but then we need to wait during the aging process which is what's going on in benton's crown finished caves to appreciate these new flavors these flavor or we could call them old flavors flavors that are more well, that's traditional really, coming that's really from what the it cheeses. is right yeah. so they're no new old flavors and so yeah. benton takes these cheeses um from from the salty knob um and he brings them down <laughs> underground to his uh dungeon down there in uh, in uh, crown heights and what have you got going on I, I actually wanted to ask you about the affinage process because a lot of people now have cheese caves in their stores and things of that nature but that's not what you're doing so what are you doing and how does that add value to the cheese well uh i mean what we're doing is we're taking cheese that's that's uh two, two weeks max in age 
you would say. Yes. And uh, you know, some as as young as as five days, uh, all raw milk cheeses that um, we take and we give them the full the full treatment. We are able to spend a lot more time with the cheese than than. Uh, Sometimes at, at farms they they are unable to to give it the attention they need, and um, you know also Peter and Rachel are keeping half half batches, so we we're able to do side by side tastings and compare uh, affinage techniques and um, what we're doing, and um, that's really what we're doing down there is we're we're giving the care that's needed to to bring the cheese to its uh, to its perfect ripeness, and you know. We're doing the best we can on that, and, and tasting things as we go, and and getting things figured out as we go, and trying different. A lot of a lot of R and D is happening down there, and um, but to separate us from what's happening in the retail shops, you know, I, I'm open to uh, you know what what people have to say about that. Uh, I mean, we're taking large quantities of raw milk cheese and and aging, and that's all we do. We're not a retail shop, so. Uh, that's that's one big difference. A lot of retail shops are finished just you know doing the the final touches on cheeses and and which is which is important to live in. It's an important cut them up and sell them. And you are actually you're bringing them along and developing the flavors. I mean, I just uh, I, I get it. I, I just, mean, I'm sitting. You know, I'll be sitting for up to two years on some cheese. That's fantastic. You know, and that's that's maybe a little different than what's happening at the retailers. Oh, I'd like to add in that. I was just down there this morning for the first time to see our cheese aging down there. And, you know, I've been doing this in Vermont for years and years in various sundry spaces. But this is a real wonderful cheese cave that he has constructed down there. It is like walking into a bygone era, except for the fine air handling equipment. You could be in a a very old space. It's, It's an art ceiling. It's brick. It's solid, you know, rock under the street. It's wonderful, and this is what's special. Yeah, it's it's what's special about it. It's 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 I, you know, I'm envious. (laughs) Well, I mean, and and in the aging facilities I've I've been in, uh, I've often seen in old spaces uh, turned to new. When I was in uh, the fortress of Saint Antoine in uh, in the Jura. Uh, we were like thirty, you know, thirty, fifty meters down below in that in this old repurposed World War One fortress. I talked with Jason Hines about that on an earlier episode, um, you know. And I also was in uh, been in the the caves in Luigi Gufanti where they took an old prosciutto cellar and uh, you know and refined the air quality and done that. And, and I've been in Benton cellars as well, and they're really amazing. Um, I I find it fascinating that there is that. It's it's so it's so clean and perfect down there, but it's the city, the city and, and city and country uh, dirt to a country boy like me are very different. I mean, I ate a lot of country dirt um, <laughs> for better or worse, but like city dirt, I want to wash off my hands right oh. right right away. You know what I mean? I'm always yeah. I'm always uh, afraid of it, but. I mean, one thing is it's a super controlled environment, and that's something that's kind of hard to find, and that sort of takes a lot of the mystery out. Sometimes what, oh, wow, this cheese is really fucking great. Um, but we had a fluctuation in temperature in, in this month, and it changed here, and, and maybe that created this to start happening. And so it's at least taking a one piece of mystery out of an equation in the aging process. You have a super stable environment, and you can base your decisions on things you actually do to the cheese and maybe not the fluctuation of your environment. Yeah. See, the other thing, too, that's going on is I've been harping on tradition, and, you know, this is, I hope, to be my last cheese business. So making our own starter cultures, getting our salt from a small company in Maine that solar evaporates 
Gulfamine salt water. That's right. our salt going Mean-sea into our salt. cheese. I, yeah. I know. I yeah. know those guys. Yeah, uh, and, and you know this raw milk as the basis for the cheese, and then pairing up with with Crown Finish Caves. That's doing a traditional thing, taking green young cheese from the country where it's made and aging it where the market is. That's and, what I think is so special about what's our collaboration. It's fascinating, um, and because you come from a very rural area, Crown Heights is um, decidedly not that. So, and being in sort of the urban environment, you know, that's what one thing that separates us out a little different is, is chefs can come, people can come, and we can select out individual wheels that they want or or, or well, certain batches. Yeah, people you know. can look for a flavor profile. That's the one of the best things about aging uh, facilities is that you. You you do you get to work with people who are looking for specific ages and textures, and you can help them through science uh, to get to exactly where they want. But I uh, I wanted to ask um, to ask you, uh, Rachel. Do you uh, do you hope this is the last uh, do your last cheese business as well? This is the last. You, cheese this business. is the last. It will cheese be the business. last, I guess. <laughs> yes, this is the one. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I. That's what I. Uh, that's what I figured you'd say. Um, well, we're going to have to take a tiny break, but we're going to come right back and talk a little bit more with Peter and Rachel and Benton about some other things. following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Hello, and welcome back to Cutting the Curd. On last week's episode, I spoke to Ann Saxelby about um, how many folks are understandably up in arms about regulations affecting the artisan cheese community in the U.S. It just seems like it's that kind of time right now. Um, And these policies also affect consumer access to cheeses from around the world uh, that are produced to certain standards. Uh, Peter and Benton and Rachel, I wanted to ask you your thoughts about these issues and variants. And um, more importantly, what are you doing and what do you think of our our listeners should do to affect change in current policies? Mm. Mm. Wow, that's a very good question. We could spend the rest of the day talking about that. I got a lot of time. All right. Well... I uh, have focused quite a bit on regulatory uh, issues um, during my career, just because it's interesting to me, uh, the food safety aspect of making cheese, you know, making a safe food. Uh, it doesn't have to be cheese, but uh, the um, criteria are pretty much the same, no matter what you're making. And so um, having had a focus on that, I've I've received a lot of training uh, in 
hazard analysis and critical control point, which is kind of a proactive, or it, it is essentially a proactive way of approaching uh, making a clean and safe product to deliver to the market. And I still feel that that's the, uh, no matter how you want to call it, whether it's hazard analysis and critical control point or risk reduction practices or whatever, that this is the way to go. And I think going forward, it would be nice if part of our regulatory system, in terms of getting a license to actually manufacture cheese commercially, would include a certain number of hours of training in that realm. It doesn't would, currently. No, and we're one of the, we're a country that doesn't require that. We're surrounded by countries that do. Canada, European countries, and I think it would up the the level of knowledge uh, uh, throughout the land uh, amongst the people making cheese, and we would have less uh, sort of issues uh, and tugs of war with uh, regulatory. It would be a lot more collaborative if we would put that in. Now, what they. I think should put in from their side. Who's they? The regulators, mm-hmm. the people that actually police us, um, would be more training on their side in terms of what is cheese, how do you make it, what are the different varieties, how are they made. Quite often we uh, are approached by people from regulatory that, for example, in, an FDA official might come to do an inspection having no prior knowledge of cheese. He's out of seafood in Boston, for example. And now he needs to learn about cheese. So, you know, training on both sides before the actual enterprises start, I think, would be very helpful. Anybody that's been in food service knows that you're going to come up against BOH uh, uh, people that don't know a lot. My father was a board of health official for 30 years. Uh-huh. And uh, some of the people he worked best with were people that he had personal relationships with. And I always feel that interpersonal relationships are best. So you can teach people if you go about it the right way and you talk to them the right way. Uh, if you deal with inspectors, I always feel like if you can break down the us versus them mentality in general, you're doing better um, than if you don't. But I find it interesting, uh, your, your initial point, um, that we don't require those hours to be put in for that licensing. And we are surrounded by countries that do, yet we're one of the largest consumers of dairy products in the world. So how, uh, guys, would we go about – how would you go about, uh, Rachel, getting that done? Right now, the ACS, the American Cheese Society, is doing great work um, working directly with the FDA – that I know. I was at the conference this yeah. year, and, they, and the FDA spoke. And I feel like that um, we're we're moving in the right direction um, by having by sitting at the table together and talking about you know really being upfront about the concerns of the regulators in terms of making sure that producers are producing safe uh, products, um, but also with them listening to the cheesemakers and to the cheese industry professionals about what their concerns are, um, being open to looking at traditional methods and what has worked for hundreds of years. Do you feel that's going to get done, just on a personal I'm level? I'm hoping. Got to have hope, right? I'm hoping. Sure. I mean, I feel like we've seen there have been positive, there's positive movement in that direction, so I'm hoping that it will continue. Um, there have been a couple of blips in the past year, a couple of years of... Um, uh, things, miscommunication, shall we say, and um, difficulty understanding exactly what each side 
affections. Well, the beginnings of any real relationship, uh, you know, the first few dates are always kind of rough. You yeah. know what I mean? You got to get to know, yeah. getting get to, to know, know each other. Another. So uh, yeah, you feel each other out. You know. The other so, point that I wanted to make is just that. Uh, safe food. I mean, everybody wants to make safe food. Absolutely. But one of the things that you have that if you want to make quality food, yes, it's a lot of the same things. Well, of course it is. So, so bearing that in mind, instead of feeling um, trying to understand that the the very things that we do to make safe food are also going to help us make the yeah. highest quality. quality. Yeah. yeah, they go hand in hand. I mean, yeah. they're they're part of each other. I, um, I mean, in terms of what can we do to be ready. I mean, the, there, for, for me, the, there's a great fear of this sort of unknown with the FDA. You know, they have rules, they have laws in place. Do they enforce them? All of a sudden they start to. Uh, all of a sudden uh, you, you could have a big problem and, and you could be running a very clean facility. And uh, so for me, you know, keeping up with uh, lab work and keeping a good paper trail of, of what we're doing and how things are clean is uh, just building up sort of a, a notebook of protection in some way just because there is an unknown and uh, that's just one thing that scares me a lot in what we're doing you know is, is clean the as unpredictability the unpredictability of uh, the higher powers that be that you know are, are somewhat out of your control but you live in that society on every level mm-hmm. you know what i mean it's true i mean you you can be pulled off the street for no reason at all yes and thrown behind bars so i mean either you stay locked in your house and don't do anything or you get your god darn notes together <laughs> and hope that you know uh, you got your papers in order when they come in and um, i think that's part of the reason why i'm a retailer because i'm terrible at paperwork I but love- they don't require your papers you know it's it's not like uh these are the rules you need to follow them. It's sort of like f- f- make a clean product, keep a good yeah. record, uh, but we're not yeah. going to require you to do that. But right. Another thing um, that people can do, I believe we're still in a comment period. Absolutely. The FDA is, uh-huh. is looking for, for comments. And so um, for producers to submit those comments to um to and you can go to the ACS on their website. They've got information about this, but um, how is it going to affect you? How how do changes in rules, um, or, or proposed changes in rules, how how will they affect you? And and so really giving that some thought and getting your ducks in a row and and being willing to give your feedback. Communication is is everything. I mean, in in, in every in every business and all in all relationships, sometimes uh, sometimes we work in places where you know the the head and the tail don't. Don't talk to uh, to one another, but um, unfortunately, or for well, fortunately, they're all attached to the to the same body, so they got to work together. Uh-huh. And one of the ways to communicate what I what I've found and I've been dragged into because I predate it a little bit is uh, is social media as a as a tool of communication. And I follow both of uh, you guys on social media and see some really interesting things. Uh, coming out, uh, Rachel, you do the social media for uh, for Parish Hill Creamery. Um, I always see interesting experimental things going on up there. And uh, recently, you guys did a, a vertical tasting of another cheese that you guys make called the Humble Herdsman. And I was wondering if maybe uh, you guys could talk to me about what the Humble Herdsman is and uh, how your tasting went. <laughs> oh. You're laughing at me? No, oh, no. Yeah. It's, uh, well, we, there was a lot of anticipation for that tasting, and, and it was uh, definitely on the younger side of the tasting. I think we come away with... So, 
just as an aside, for those of us who don't know, the Hummel Herdsman is a cow's milk cheese. Yeah, I'll describe it. Please yeah, do. It's, uh, it's uh, the softest cheese we make. It's a simple tom. It's more of a French-style cheese. I think what I've learned, uh, one of the tra- traditional French practices is to wash a tom with hard cider. Yes, and I've seen and, that. Yeah, and so that's what we do. Why do you do it? Uh, just because it intrigued me. Yeah. And I've done some experiments around that in the past and liked the results. So I figured, why not just create this cheese entirely that way? When you say Keep you like the results, like did you like the results of flavor and texture and all of those things? All of those things. I like the way the rind looks. It gets a little rumply from the growth of the yeast. that has uh-huh. these powerful enzymes that break down the proteins, and then you get the, the rumply texture developing as the interior begins to soften. And then I also like the uh, the mushroomy fungal nature of the of the taste, and I like the texture of the rind. It's got like a bread crust type of rind, and you combine that with the sweet, milky flavors in a young cheese. And then you you as you know we we found in the tasting that uh, the cheese that spent two months here in the city versus the cheese that spent two months in the country. They're fairly much the same now. And that's the tasting I had yeah, mentioned. Yeah, had. but given time, I would say a cheese like that uh, will have some different experiences when you're tasting it. Uh, I don't know when that's going to happen because we, we've, we're just doing it. Uh, we are using different ciders. We're using a cider that uh, that is made in Vermont, and down here uh, Benton's using a cider yeah, from Michigan, Virtue Cider. Virtue red, Cider. Red, red Streak. And uh, you, I saw you had a keg down there. I uh-huh. that was just for your personal <laughs> consumption, you know what I mean? You must get lonely down there working in all of your... I mean, we go through a lot of it. Yeah. Every other day, we're washing that cheese. I mean, we're really... Turning and washing. Yeah. I mean, I like, in all seriousness, I like cider washed cheeses, and I like cider. And in the parts of Europe, I've been fortunate enough to travel to... A northern France, uh, especially in Normandy, uh, Brittany, um, and even further in the Pasta Calais, uh, there's a lot of cider and a lot of there's a lot of apples up there, and uh, they 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 wash uh, a lot of cheeses in them. And uh, when you mentioned the breadcrumb texture, uh, one of my favorite uh, cheeses that I had up there was a uh, was a little camembert that was covered in breadcrumbs that had been soaked in uh, yes. in cider, uh-huh. which is like an old traditional. Uh, traditional thing, then that's that's pretty cool. I guess the other thing too, when you think about this northeastern region we live in, both our state Vermont and New York State, apples are big. Yeah, that that's, that's the, the best fruit that comes from around here, product. in my opinion. So, that's the best heirloom fruit that comes from around. And here. And what did people mostly drink a hundred years ago? Fermented cider, exactly. Yeah, that's great. So, I mean, no, the the root, and that's and that goes back to you know all the way back back around to some of your initial comments about uh, wanting to be true to the terroir that you're from, um, and I think that's really cool. I'm a I'm an exiled New Englander. You know, I, I live down here. I'm a New Englander in name only now. Um, I mean, I still uh, love the socks to the chagrin of most of the people I have to deal with around here, but um, I think it's great, and uh, and I know where you come from. Um, Vermont is a beautiful place um, and a great agrarian. In, well, in we, a spot. we grew up not too far away from each other. Yeah, well, where are you from? Guilford, yeah, I'm from yeah. Templeton, Massachusetts, which is about as big as this room. Uh, mm-hmm. Had one the one blinking school light, you know what I mean? Um, Benton, where are you from? I'm from Nashville. 
Oh, nice. A little bit of a different... What's the zone. cheese culture like down in uh, Tennessee? Uh, good question. There is uh, one wonderful cheese shop called the Bloomy Rhine down there that uh, really uh, controls the market besides Whole Foods. Um, and she's she's great, Kathleen Cotter. Maybe I, you've had her on the show. I don't I, know. I met her at the ACS, actually. Yeah, really um, nice. Or someone from the Bloomy Rhine. I think it was her, but it was Probably later her. in the evening, so I don't know. Now, are you selling them cheese? Uh, we have in the past, and uh, we hope to continue. I, I like to support my hometown of course yeah and well we like to support you so that's a brings me to another interesting question um so how do you get your cheese from place well we know that peter brings your his cheese down to you but where do we get your cheese uh, how do how do we how we we could do we have to like go through a manhole cover get down into there into the into the cellars or are you distributing it locally now you're yeah no it's starting to come out uh but yeah the peter uh, we get our shipment every other week from Parish Hill. Comes down uh, on a pallet and totes, uh, all wrapped up, and then um, they're starting. You know, last week I guess when we started to to to, to make some of the Brooklyn Age cheeses that are available, the Suffolk Punch and the Humble Herdsman, and um, it's usually me that will bring it to you uh, <laughs> at this point uh, so you're but, your own distributor uh, we're we're very you know we're we're very small getting things worked out and uh it's either susan my wife or me or an unknown character with uh you know we well can't, i met your little little one i hope that you don't have her driving right. vehicles yet that's right that's right <laughs> uh, but soon we're gonna have uh one of the cheesemakers from parish hill is gonna come and uh, start working for us so you're gonna see this guy around a lot and so his name is sam that's really great well, you know, I'm. I'm. We support your business uh, at Italy. We sell. Um, we sell the Herdsman. We will hopefully be selling the Hummel Herdsman. Yeah. Um, we sell the Reverie and the Suffolk Punch and another pasta filata cheese, which we didn't get to talk about too much today, called Kashar. Um, yes. But I really, um, I want to thank all y'all for coming down today to meet with me and to uh, to. Um, Talk to me about cheese, Peter. It's it's great to talk to you, Benton. Oh, thank you. And it's always great to to talk to you too. And Rachel, and our silent partner who shall remain nameless, who may or may not have been in the booth with us. I'll never tell. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, and tune in next week to another episode of Cutting the Curd live on the Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.